Uh, if you're new here today, a special welcome to you and uh, glad you're joining us. We just started last week in the book of Mark. And the introduction was last week, really looking at the author himself. And one of the pieces to that introduction was Mark focuses on the identity of Christ. And we're going to see that through the whole book of Mark. It's very important for him as he worked through it. But today we be, we come to another passage. We come to Mark chapter 1, verse 12. And we'll put that on the screen here. And uh, you notice, uh, maybe you notice the, the title, Even the Wind and the Sea Obey Him. But this is the section for today. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, this short section uh, doesn't give a lot of details, and there's times where, you understand, Mark isn't really a chronological book. And he gives these snapshots, and sometimes it gives different information than the other Gospels in one sense. But today, as I was, or this week, as I was studying, I go, I think we need to hit this idea of his temptation just a little bit more than what Mark gives us here. So if you got your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 4. And what I want to do is I want to show this in the video form. If you know the book of Matthew is actually word for word uh, on the video. And we're going to play that just for the verses that we're going to cover here this morning. So let's go ahead and play that. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan! For it is written, Worship the Lord your God, and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. Now understand the context of this passage here is that Jesus had just gotten baptized, from John the Baptist, and he walks into the wilderness. He goes into the wilderness, or even he's led there by the Spirit. 
But folks, I, I gotta remind you, as he was going into the desert, it wasn't some just, oh, by the way, experience. He was marching out to a war, but the war had no soldiers, no planes, no bullets. But this war had far greater consequences than any other war that the world has ever gone through. It was a war between the Prince of Darkness and Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And just pause and consider this a second. See, had Jesus lost this war and he succumbed to those temptations, he would have been disqualified for the cross. The cross would have meant absolutely nothing. See, the war begins by Jesus going in there, spends 40 days fasting. Now, fasting is a discipline that's meant to focus on spiritual things, to set aside the temporal things in life. But you go, why 40 days, even on that fasting? And I don't know if you realize that most scholars actually believe that it's a symbolic thing, really pointing back to the 40 years that Israel had wandered in the desert. See, Jesus quotes three different times scripture, and he quotes Deuteronomy. Moses talking to the nation of Israel. And by the way, Israel if you remember, is really considered the firstborn son of God. A couple times in Exodus and Hosea refers to Israel as God's first son, but Israel failed the test. But God's son will succeed as we read. But look at, let's dig into verse 3 here. Look how it reads. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. See, it starts with this phrase, the tempter. The tempter. It defines his character. Now, another piece of his character, I won't go here this morning, but John chapter 8, it talks about Satan being the father of lies. So here the character of Satan is such that he's a professional liar. And he uses temptation to throw at this world so that they would follow him rather than Christ. Matter of fact, if, if you think about it, it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Lying to Eve, twisting the truth. Did God really say that you shouldn't eat of that tree? Isn't God holding something back from you? Satan was there. That was the start of the temptation in this world. And he propagates this all the way through history. Now, I don't know if you realize this. I happened to come across the stat this week. 43% of the people in the United States do not believe in a literal Satan. They believe in religion. And many of those people actually claim to believe the Bible. And yet somehow they don't realize that there's a spiritual battle, and in this particular case, a spiritual battle between Jesus and Lucifer himself. Now, as I was thinking about this, this might be an, a question you could use as a knock on somebody's heart sometime. Maybe you go to work tomorrow and ask this question. Do you believe in Satan? Throw it out there and see what they say. 
And if they go, ah, oh, if they, they go, yeah or no, if they say no, here would be a follow-up question. Well, then where does evil come from? Just stir it with some people. I encourage you to do that. But see, the, the first temptation in Genesis 3 threw the world into sin. And that temptation was so important. But you understand, this temptation was going to decide the fate of the world. Was the world going to stay in darkness forever and succumb to the evil forces of Satan? Or was it going to be free from and go to somewhere different? See, this temptation and this victory had eternal consequences. That was what was really at stake here. But another observation here, coming into this verse, notice that this is right after being baptized, and I think this is a fair assumption, that Satan or his forces, they were at the baptism of Jesus. They were there in the garden. And they heard God speak and say this, this is my son whom I am well pleased. And you go, what difference? Well, notice what he's challenging Jesus with. That phrase in verse 3, if you are the son of God. See, he's going after his identity. He's going after, in one sense, the authority of his father. He's challenging him. He's challenging his father. If you are the son, if you are the son. We need to catch this, that Satan's primary roles and plans in this world is to create doubt about who God really is. And what God, does he have authority even in this world? That's what he wants the whole world convinced, doubt about that God is real, that he's good, that he's powerful, that he is ultimately in control. Satan wants to twist. But we also see that Satan waited 40 days till that fast was almost to the end. And you go, why? And I think this is the reason. I think at 40 days there was a peak of hunger that left Jesus vulnerable at that point. He was vulnerable. See, I don't think it's any accident that he comes to that point and he approaches Jesus, but, but catch this, there's a deep application here for us as well that we got to apply to our lives. Number one, if you're following along in the sermon outline there, I said this, temptation often will come when we are most vulnerable. Now, I've got to expand this a little bit and, and just take note, not every temptation is the evil one speaking into our ear. That, that's not the case. Understand, he uses the world to also tempt us, but I think there's a third part as well, that our flesh, the old nature, that part that's learned about and consumed with our own self-love, that temptation can even rise from that. And it rises or people are asking questions of us and saying like this, man, isn't life unfair? You know, I deserve a break today. We deserve better. Listen, temptation 
has its most powerful opportunities when we are most vulnerable. See, when our emotional tank is on low, or maybe even physically we're hurting, but maybe more important, our spiritual tank. What if our spiritual tank really is leaning toward that E side of it? See, at that point, we have to stop and admit that we are vulnerable. But folks, Jesus was vulnerable at this point. But here's where I think I need to ask the question. How's your spiritual tank doing today? Your emotional tank, your physical tank, are you vulnerable right now? But realize what that practically means for us is that we need to have a growing ability, a growing spiritual wisdom as so we do not put ourselves in settings that are highly vulnerable, where there can be strong temptations, especially when those tanks are low. Now, now again, i, I got to say this as well. Just remember, temptation isn't sin. Okay? But I think over the years, I've kind of heard this at times. Many people view temptation and trials coming to them and they go, well, I'm the re just because they're so intense, they go, maybe I'm a bad Christian. And I go, no, Jesus was left an example for us here. We will all experience it. We will all fail at times. We're grateful he didn't. But we get to our knees and we confess but we experience it. We experience big temptations, little temptations. You know, I don't know if you realize this, but for most pastors, Mondays is one of those days of vulnerability for us. And for myself, you know what? I'm tempted, I realize this, I'm, I'm tempted to be more short with my wife. I had my grandson last Monday with me, and my patience was pretty low, okay? And he had an attitude a couple of times during that day. And there was a temptation there as to how I would respond. I think that it was part of my flesh. I have to admit that there was once where I didn't respond. And that I succumbed to that temptation of not doing what was loving, but, but I, I think that the point is we want to ignore that at times there's, there's points of vulnerability and, and I, I don't think we can play the rule of ignorance. we got to go, what is wisdom in putting ourselves in situations where we're, when we're not invincible, or, you know, when we think we're invincible? See, while we'll always be tempted, you know, why do we make it harder and we put ourselves in the settings where it's actually, can I use the word stupid here? Is that Okay. <laughs> Okay, foolish. I'll use that one. For, for example, if you struggle with alcohol, why would you head to a bar and sit there by yourself and order a Coke? You're putting yourself in a vulnerable place to succumb to temptation. That's just plain unsmart. You know, I, I worked with college and career for many, many years. And one area in particular intersected deeply with vulnerability. And it was in the area of dating. 
And, and we taught on this subject, we would teach on this subject every year in our series, of, of, of in, in different series. But what I would see is I would see self-confidence in young men and young women that would begin to build a relationship with another man or another woman, and they claim to be a believer, but I would see their self-confidence, and all on the side intellectually, they would know the biblical command in 1 Corinthians 7 not to be unequally yoked. And yet they're setting themselves in a, in a vulnerable position of moving on a path that God says is not good. Now, I have to say this as well over the years. Some parents don't want me to talk about this issue. But here's a deal. This, in this issue particularly, it's changed in how young people and parents view it. Many young people don't see this as the potential for temptation and being vulnerable. So high schoolers, this would apply to you. Let me show you a quote. This is from Christianity Today. It was an article written on being unequally yoked. And it makes this an interesting statement. Marriage has shifted in purpose over time. Many Christians have added layers of meaning unto Paul's wise command. Again, that's that First Corinthians command. Unequally yoked has evolved into a graded criterion for an optimal mate rather than a simple test for an acceptable one. And he says, this is a problem. So understand what's happened is that there's a, it's shifted where to marry an unbelievable or an unbeliever is really optional and it's just one of the things that you, you would prefer to have that person have a faith. And it's not a necessity anymore. That's the shift. Now, now here's... One of the verses I use in premarital, I'll, I'll sit down with a couple and I go, how do you present each other complete in Christ? You know, that's kind of my life verse, that Colossians passage, because it's so applicable. And I'll talk about how a husband presents his wife complete in Christ and a wife or husband. But let me ask you a question. If you're unequally yoked, how does a person who does not have a faith present the other person complete in Christ? They can't. Now here's where I, I got to go. This issue is, is vital to our young people today. Um, had a young gal come in, probably mid-20s. She came in, and, and actually, she didn't come in alone. When she had called me to set up the appointment, she was going to come in alone. But her boyfriend, that she was dating at the time, she didn't want to... He, he wanted to hear what I was going to say. Okay, he was, I think he was a little worried. Um, but he, they come in, they sit down, I begin talking, and we talk about relationships, and I brought up the Colossians 1.28. How do you presenting each other complete in Christ? And I looked at her and I said, do you think this young man who is sitting in the room here with, with us, do you think he will present you complete in Christ? And she looked at him, I can never forget, she goes, no. And he was there. A couple weeks later, she broke up, and about a year and a half later, I actually did her wedding to another young, godly man. 
But here's the deal. I, I got to confess something here because, you know what? I did it wrong when I was growing up. I was putting myself in vulnerable situations in dating in high school, and it was stupid. Now, you have to, is it a sin to date an unbeliever? The answer is probably not. Spiritually unwise? Yes. And I look back, and I didn't learn this concept until I was married in seven or eight, nine, ten years later, working in a youth ministry. My parents never communicated anything to me about this issue. Deanna didn't accept Christ until her senior year in high school, and other girls are dated. You know what? I, I was stupid. But just because it worked out doesn't mean that it was smart. And looking back, we had to, as we were parenting, we talked to our son, my son and my daughter about this issue. And here's the deal. You've got to be talking to your kids about this issue before they're in a dating relationship, before they're even thinking about a dating relationship. So the, the, the question for you parents, here's a question, especially you younger parents. Talk to your kids. Here's the challenge for you. Maybe this afternoon, talk to them about this issue. But see, parents, if we claim to follow Christ, we need to be having conversations with our sons and our daughters. And if you don't think it's a big deal, I don't want you in my office sometime when you hear the heartbreak of being unequally yoked in a marriage. Uh, Lakewood, when I was serving at Lakewood, we actually a number of years ran a support group for women who were unequally yoked with their spouses, with their husbands. It was a heartache. But we need to learn to not put ourselves in situations where temptation can occur and where we're vulnerable. We need to learn to trust God in new ways. But let me move on. Look at verse 4. There's another issue here we need to dig into. Look at first, but he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Here's the application I have. The power to resist temptation comes from our willingness to turn and to seek help from our Heavenly Father. See, Jesus was experiencing temptation just like we do. And the battle to resist and to win the battle of this temptation, he turns and he uses and he acknowledges the words of his father that real life comes from my father, not from you, Satan. It comes from the mouth of, of God. And he uses the words of God to speak that was right and true, that would reflect what the father wants. And that's what we must learn to do as well, to turn to the Word, to turn to talk to the Father. We listen to Him and go, God, what do you want? Not just what are my emotions saying, what do you want? And we draw on His power to be used for us to resist temptation. Now, here's where some want to say this. Well, He was God. Jesus was God and He couldn't have done it. And folks, that is not theologically sound at all. Listen, there was no hint in, in this one, in Luke, in this text, of that, that Jesus ever drew on his Godhead to resist Satan. 
This was within his humanity of being fully man. It wasn't his divine power that he resisted. It wasn't his divine power that had the strength, the power to say no. It was reliance on his Father and depending on his Father to give him the power to do that. Matter of fact, in 1 Peter 2, 1 Peter 2 is a, is a chapter on suffering and it points to this, Christ was left an example for us to suffer. But it says this, and, and he, that he had to entrust himself to him who judges justly in order to bear that suffering. See, he hung on the cross, and in order for him to do that, he had to draw on the resources of his father so that he didn't lash out of these people against them and kill them. Rather, he spoke these words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. See, we need to draw on the Father and gain power to be able to resist when those temptations come along in life. We need to stop and ask. But let me go down another path here, another application. When he asked the question, why was it wrong of what Satan asked Jesus Turn those rocks into bread. Folks, Jesus hadn't eaten in 40 days. 40 days. Was it wrong for him to have food there? Application number three. Satan looks to take something which is legitimate and good and use it in a way that is contrary to God's desires. See, there was nothing wrong with food. Jesus knew he needed it. The Father knew that he needed it. But catch this. The context was wrong. Matter of fact, let me show you from the third temptation. Look at verse 8, 8 and 9. Again, the devil took him up to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. See, there wasn't anything wrong for Jesus to rule over the kingdoms of that world. Matter of fact, it's already promised that Jesus is going to rule. But what's wrong here? It's the context. The context makes it wrong. And the context is this, is that right now, Satan rules this world. He has dominion over this earth. And Satan tells Jesus, what's he doing? He's telling Jesus, if you just bow down once to me, just once, look at all that you can get. I have some things, these are things, you're going to really enjoy this, Jesus. Things that I have now, you can have them. See, the context is wrong. Just bow and give me a quick bow, Jesus. Uh, apply this to us. You know what? Satan wants us to linger on the possibilities for our lives. Look to the future, he tells us, but he wants to set the wrong context. 
have all these things, but the wrong context, context is, you know, we dream big, we want the big house, we want the perfect car, we want the right retirement, all these desires. But what does Satan want to do? He wants to create a context where our identity is found in those things, not in Christ. He's saying, take the easy path. See, all you have to do to have all that stuff, the wrong context, is to withdraw your worship of God and don't worry about following Jesus. Make them most important. Folks, Satan was offering Jesus, I don't know if you know, realize this, an easy way out. When he was looking to be tempted, what he's, there's a sub-thing here taking place of going, just do this and you don't have to go to the cross. Skip the cross, Jesus. It's going to be more satisfying if you have these kingdoms. Do you, Jesus, do you really want to experience this death? Do you really want those nails going through your hands? Just one second, bow down before me, and you can skip the whole brutality of the cross. Listen, Satan wanted Jesus to experience things that were good through illegitimate means and an illegitimate process. Let me push this even farther. Look at verses 5 through 7 here. The second temptation. And here what Jesus did, he takes scripture, which is true, and he twists the context to make it illegitimate. Look at how in verse 5, Then the devil took him to the holy city, and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their heads they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him again, It's written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. See, if you are the Son of God, but by the way, what he's doing here, this the scripture that Satan's using, this is Psalm 91, 11, and 12. But he's twisting it. He's taking the truth and twisting it to give it a new context. And he's using it to tempt Jesus. Satan is fundamentally saying, prove it, Jesus. Your God really loves you? Jump. Put your father to the test. Come on, jump to see if he'll save you. You say he's a good father? Prove it. Just like in the garden, folks, when you think of that Adam and Eve experience. They were trying to create doubt. Satan was trying to create doubt about the goodness of, of God, the authority of God. But Satan here is saying, Jesus, put your money where your mouth is and step out in faith. I put a line there in your notes. I want to fill that in for you. Just a reminder. Testing God is not the same as trusting God. And I think there's many times when we come to a place where we begin to test God. God, you're going to have to prove it for me. And Jesus himself says, don't put God to the test. So be very careful there. See, Jesus is saying, I'm following my Father. He's the one that I serve. 
See, Satan in this world is trying to convince us to believe that temporal pleasures of sin are more satisfying than seeking Christ and listening listening to our Heavenly Father. He takes that which is good, even Scripture, and he twists it to change the context. He pushes it to extreme. Let me just give you some illustrations. Eating good food. In the right context, it is a gift from God. In the wrong context, it's gluttony. Rest. We need rest. We're supposed to set aside a Sabbath rest and, and, and sit and, and refurbish our souls. In the wrong context, laziness. I need it all the time. Being industrious is a good thing. But all of a sudden, workaholic, getting our identity out of our work, the context is wrong. And it can even lead to greed. Think of this. Liberty in the right context, it is a gift from God. In the wrong context, it's a license to do whatever. Whatever we want, whatever we decide is good or what evil. Wisdom on one side. Cynicism in the wrong context. I have a marriage retreat next weekend. We think of the joy of sex within a marriage. It's a gift of God. But the outside of marriage, illegitimate. God says it's wrong. Stay away. Even when you go to, in our culture right now, there's a battle over marriage. The right context of marriage between a man and a woman, God sets the context. Somebody else, Satan, switches the context and everybody deserves love in a relationship. You see, he just changed the context and it's, and it's wrong, illegitimate. See, at the heart of temptation is that Satan wants to just slide the context over, lie just a little bit to us, create a little bit of doubt. Did God really say and mean that in those scriptures? He he might be withholding something from you, that which is good. See, Satan wants to convince us that we need a break today. And think tomorrow, should we just, oh, I need a break today, so let's, I'm going to just call in sick tomorrow, even though I'm not that sick. But, but think of, think of the settings where the context is wrong and we're vulnerable. Let me end with a couple questions. Are you vulnerable right now? Are you spiritually dry? And I would say this, if that's true, you're vulnerable. Are you lonely? And you're saying, you know what? I don't know if that God can meet that need, fill that hole. And i got to be the one that finds somebody else. And I'm going, you're vulnerable. And may, or maybe it's this. Do you think you're on top of the world right now and everything is going smooth, there's no attacks, life is going good? I would say this. You are vulnerable. 
We can never get overconfident. We've got to keep seeking the Father. Let me close with a verse. 1 Peter chapter 5. And I want to read the Amplified here. It just adds some weight to it. Look how it reads. Be sober, well-balanced in self-discipline. Be alert and cautious at all times that enemy of yours, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, fiercely hungry, seeking someone to devour. Who catch that? He is looking to tempt. He is looking for us to stumble. He's looking for us to turn and walk away from Jesus. But resist him. Be firm in your faith against his attack, rooted, established, and immovable. That's in Christ. Do we take this seriously that we have a force out there that's called Satan, that's looking to, to shape the world where there is vulnerability and there's temptation all over the place. And I think the key for us is to recognize the lies of Satan in this world. And we need to turn to the Father. And we need to ask, what words, Father, do you want us through your word to know so we can receive power to resist He's inviting us to pray, to come to Him, to have communion with Him so that we have the ability to draw on His power to give us the ability to say no when those temptations come. We need to be aware. God needs to work. And the good news is as we draw and move toward Him, He gives us the power to say no. That's really good news. Let's stand and pray.